It is end of March, the beginning of April. Spring has sprung. Spring has sprung. The sun is pushing its rays through the clouds. The birds are tweeting. And what that means in New York City is that it's time for a new edition of the New Directors New Films Festival at Film at Lincoln Center. A showcase for the best new (laughs) films by emerging directors worldwide. Yeah, like crocuses from the the half-frozen earth, the new directors emerge. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the co-deputy editors of Film Comment. This week, one of our favorite annual festivals opens at Film at Lincoln Center. Every spring, the New Directors New Films Festival puts on an exciting showcase of movies by the best emerging filmmakers around the world. It's always a reliable sign of the trends to come and the talents to look out for in the world of cinema. Past editions have featured early films by Spike Lee, Christopher Nolan, Kelly Reichardt, and many others. Over the past few years, we've established our own annual film comment tradition of previewing the best movies in the New Directors New Films lineup with local critics. This time around, we were joined by Vadim Rizov and Beatrice Loeza for a rundown of some of the gems in the 2023 edition, including Earth Mama, Arnold is a Model Student, Safe Place, The Face of the Jellyfish, and more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We are continuing our annual tradition this year of previewing the new director's new films lineup. This is the film comment preview, and we have... Two excellent guests with us, one of whom has been our preview companion for, for a couple years now, Vadim. Hello, Devika. How are you? I'm I'm good. As I said, the sun is shining. Things and we're inside. Good. We're talking. It's good. <laughs> Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Vadim Rizov, Director of Editorial Operations at Filmmaker Magazine. Excellent. Welcome. And we have another sort of veteran film comment podcaster and critic. Beatrice. <laughs> Hello, I am Beatrice Liza. I am a writer, critic, New York Times film comment, four columns, etc. And yeah, I'm excited for this. My first time on the podcast for this particular um, True. festival, but I have written about it in the past. Well, it's great to have you on, both of you. Let's jump into it. I think um, we we have a lot of like just highlights that we want to shout out from this year's lineup there's 27 features so there's quite a few uh we've not seen all of them but all four of us together have sifted through quite a few uh to pick out some highlights but i thought that clint you and i could start by talking about a favorite of ours uh, which is also the opening night film of the festival which is earth mama by savannah leaf listeners dedicated listeners of the podcast will have heard about Earth Mama before because we um, talked about it a lot at Sundance as well, where it was certainly my favorite um, of the and Sundance lineup. And you wrote lineup. about it in your um, in your dispatch from the festival. Yeah, so we've talked about it a bunch already, and and so we won't maybe rehash everything, but I think it's worth uh, just shouting out this film, uh, which I think is a very 
a really remarkable first feature. It's, you know, the kind of first feature that really makes you pay attention to the filmmaker mm -hmm. and um, look for what they're doing next. And I think it it's a very strong opening night film. But Clint, because I've talked about it so much, uh, why don't you you take this one? Okay, so Earth Mama is a movie that follows a young woman, a young mother. She has two children. They must they might be like I'd say around five and seven years old who are a part of the child welfare system. They've they've been taken into foster care essentially and taken under the protection of the state of California. The film takes place in Oakland and it's really I mean it's kind of like a very kaleidoscopic movie, so I'm kind of having a hard time describing it on a plot level. But the plot is essentially that this young woman, this young mother, whose name escapes me, do you Gia. remember? Gia. Gia, yes. Yeah. Is working with the state to get back custody of her children or to spend more time with them. And she's pregnant. So she has another child on the way. And the state of California and its various agents are monitoring this situation very closely. And she's works part-time at a photo studio she's she's doesn't have very much money at all she struggles to pay her um month-to-month -month phone bill she lives with her, a friend who is uh it's implied that this friend is a drug dealer so it's a situation that she's aware is not appropriate for children not appropriate for her family but she doesn't really have any other options and so she's also participating in state-run therapy sessions, group therapy sessions with other women in similar situations. And uh, the Savannah Leaf, the filmmaker, combines this narrative thread with what I took to be also a narrative, but I think presents as kind of documentary sequences, interviews, or um, I don't know what they are, sort of statements testaments by these mothers direct to direct to the camera about their situation about the, like where they how they've ended up in this situation and about their how they feel about themselves and their families um but like yeah i don't know the movie is just i think it's really impressive in that it's not reductive in any way shape or form of the characters experience or of the characters themselves or their situations. It just sort of presents these people as complex people. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know. It's, it's like, I realize it sounds like it's a, that's a very low bar, but there's, it's just incredibly moving. And I feel like movies that are about this kind of thing always are reductive. They always take their use their characters to say something about society to say to make some kind of point as and use them as and kind of reduce them to tools and this movie is very loving very warm and very moving as and just sort of a it's it's really impressive that the filmmaker is able to to pull this off i think i don't know yeah i mean i think this the idea that you're getting at about it they it just the characters feeling so complex i think the elements that this film is made up of we do encounter encounter them a lot mm -hmm. i think especially in festival sort films sort of like misery and, porn type of well, movies yeah or or even just like social what people i think now refer to as social realism this idea of of a 
um, the story of, you know, a person struggling against the world that comes to represent some larger statement about the world. And that this film is that on some level, but it is so beautifully filmed and acted and it is so full of empathetic I, I don't even want to say empathetic because even that feels like a cliche word. It it is just so full of um detail respect, about respect for the characters. I yeah, think. but also just like a lot of just life detail mm -hmm. that doesn't all you know, often in these kinds of movies every detail is corralled into driving home this end right. point. And that's not the case. It, the The lives are so wonderfully colored in and flushed out. And I think one thing I really want to highlight, which I mentioned when I wrote about the film, is that the, the film never tells us Gia's backstory. So there are all these incredible scenes of her attending these group sessions with other mothers also struggling to get custody of their kids back from the state they're mandated to go to these classes where they're taught you know there's sort of therapy skills training sort of classes and you hear a lot of women talk about their struggles why they were not able to be like good mothers I'm, I'm doing air quotes that obviously listeners cannot see um, in the eyes of the state and people reveal struggles with you know familial trauma drug abuse poverty all these things and you see that all these things are aspects of Gia's life but she never tells her story and her best friend is always like you need to speak up otherwise you won't like impress you your caseworker right says, yeah. yeah you don't you won't convince them that you're making progress but she doesn't feel able to and I I find I found that to be a really powerful gesture of the film as well that it doesn't tell you why Gia is in this position it just confronts you with her day-to-day -day life you know her day-to-day -day struggles to get custody of her children, her day-to-day -day struggles to figure out what she's going to do with this unborn baby that she really doesn't want the baby to have the fate of her, her kids who are already here. And that kind but of just focus... But the options are so limited, I think, that, yeah. It's, it's yeah. Just, yeah. And that kind of focus on just, like, the here and now of this character, I it's just so remarkably moving the the performances are you know just i thought they were tremendous the the uh, gia is played by uh tia no more um who i believe is an oakland rapper making her film debut and I, it just, she's amazing yeah i mean the the characters are all very tender and also i should say the film is shot and cut so beautifully with so much like delicacy and Everything is very color saturated, but not in a fake or overdone way. It really mm -hmm. kind of captures the beauty of this place and these lives, even though what you see is these people, I mean, especially Gia and her friends living quite difficult lives, but you're still constantly washed over by the beauty of the setting. Right. You're not, it's not, it's not highlighted that their lives are difficult necessarily. And I think that that's kind of what's stands out i mean you don't see this any kind of like it doesn't they don't appear to be living in squalor as like in a right like and i mean in, in present, there's a the same situation there's a there's a scene where she has to steal diapers for her uh for her unborn child to, to prepare for the birth and it plays out in a way that like i feel like it's not that you're it's not that the filmmaker is trying to make you sympathetic it's just irrelevant to the complexity it's just a present like another thing that is a part of her life that she has to do in order to in order to move forward i mean it's really day. gutting 
that scene and she you can see her moral struggle mm-hmm. play out on her face but it's also very beautifully shot I mean mm-hmm. it's in close up as she's running it's like a tracking shot of her going getting the diapers and then and then you hear voices like stop thief right and um and so there's just this sense of you know you you sense the filmmakers and the cinematographers love for these characters this complete love like it's that kind of film where you sense that from every frame and i think it just yeah i i just feel like i've seen and heard and read this story so many times and yet i haven't seen a story like this you know told this story told in in this way and um i should also mention that these scenes of Therapy sessions, like Clint was saying, they almost seem like nonfiction. I'm not sure if those are actors or if they are actually non-professionals that maybe Savannah Leaf enlisted for these scenes. But there's one that really um, moved me so much is at one point, uh, so there's all these men always hanging out around Gia's apartment, you know, just sort of like street loafers, kind of. They're just there. They're like catcalling women, making these jokes, smoking weed. And there's one point where she asks them when she's trying to make a decision about her unborn child, if like what their experience in the foster system was like, and they narrate their experiences one by one in front of these, the backgrounds at her photo studio where she works. So these like faux tropical backgrounds. And these men who are, you know, these tough street nuts are so vulnerable suddenly. And they're recounting like how the foster system scarred them, how being away from their mothers, you know, left a wound they were never able to heal, like how they wonder what would have become of them if they weren't separated from their parents. And it's just, again, it it maybe even sounds corny when I describe it, but it's just so moving and understated and you really feel like you're getting an insight into these people's lives with us again that they are they are being clearly the filmmakers giving them a space of trust and love to just share Mm -hmm. parts of themselves that otherwise they may not yeah Um, i will say that the one the one quibble i have with the movie was the portrayal of the um the caseworkers and the therapist and the and the uh potential adopting family that she meets with i think that there's they're like a little bit broadly drawn compared to the other characters which is fine because it kind of works with the movie but those are the one moments where those are the moments in the movie where you do feel it kind of slipping back into this kind of pre-existing structure i didn't think so i thought they were very specific like the caseworker is kind of cruel and very um very beholden to procedures which seems you know realistic like her presence in Gia's life but the therapist and the family that's consider considering adopting her child I thought were very complex I mean the family's black which is very important for her and they're very loving and they have their own struggles with like fertility they have their own reasons for why they want to adopt a child which are very moving on their own and the therapist is interesting because she seems to be really kind and supportive and at the same time, you share Gia's suspicion toward her because she is working the system. And her goal is to work within the system, but to help black mothers like Gia. But for someone like Gia, anyone who is working, who is part of the system, is someone to be regarded with suspicion, right? So I found them really, I mean, I do want to highlight that I think they are also these interesting side stories. It's, I mean, that's, to me, the strength of this film that... 
it's about Gia, but ev- every side character has like these little stories that you occasionally yeah, open into. I just think that those are weaker side stories. I think that, but that, but I think that's part of. I mean, you're kind of saying this, but I think because the movie is a subject, like there's a subjective point of view here, and it's told from Gia's point of view. Her suspicion of these characters is sort of expressed, and they might be painted with a slightly broader brush as a result. I think we've talked. We don't want to get too much into Earth Mom. I think we've already done like twenty twenty five minutes. So let's get, let's. <laughs> I think uh, Vadim and Beatrice have gone out for coffee. Come back. <laughs> yeah, are they back yet? Okay, there they are. Um, <laughs> okay, let's... Uh, well, Earth Mama, big thumbs up from at least from Clint and myself. And I hope people... Are we doing the Ebert and uh, yeah, Cisco and Ebert thing? <laughs> exactly. Two thumbs up. Maybe next, let's talk about uh, Arnold as a Model Student, which is a film I saw a while ago at Locarno last year. And I was a little mixed on it but I was also extremely sleepy when I saw it and jet lagged so I'm actually very curious to hear what you both thought of it so just just to set this up a little bit um Arnold's and a model student written and directed by one Soraya's Kapapan is a, a kind of unusual combination of a movie that's extremely didactic while also being made by somebody with extreme formalist brain uh which is not a, a normal combination it is um it's it's a diagnosis it's, yeah, uh, the uh, so the 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 movie, and I didn't know this until the end credits because I I guess I don't read haven't read the news for like the last three years. Um, kind of takes off from the the bad student protest movement in Thailand, and so it's you don't you don't normally see a movie that says based on a movement, um, but you only you it's it's sort so it's kind of like the origin story of the student protest movement in Thailand, and it's it's very brisk. It's eighty five minutes, um, and and. Nearly every scene is about the pervasiveness of corruption in Thailand, uh, manifest in a variety of surroundings, first at the at the school, whereas it turns out that the title is actually ironic. Arnold is not a model student. Arnold is somebody whose mother has paid his way through extensive donations to the private school where he goes. He's able to parlay this into getting paid for doing other illicit things, and we get to see um, a kind of cross-section of, of, of corruption on, on multiple networks. Uh, the movie, however, is shot like something that you might expect from something that is funding from the Robert M. Huber Falls Fund. <laughs> um, it is like a, it's 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 a very kind of um, that's very insidery. So you have to yeah. expand on that. OK, so what we're talking about here is a movie filmed in uh, I mean, 166. Uh, lots of like master shot compositions, um, close ups only for emphasis. Um, and it's funny, but mostly because the blocking is sometimes comical or like people are awkward in relation to each other in ways where like they think they're disguising the corruption in public, but just barely. Um, so it's it's an interesting combination. And why, why do you why do you think that's a Hubert Baltz fund um, motif? I would you know, if you it's I don't think that that per se is, but I think that conspicuous formalism is is a, a highlight. I think I mean, it's a thornier path. I think sometimes the Hubert Balls Fund has been supported of, of, of uh, accused of supporting projects that um, adhere more to like an international language of art house filmmaking rather than representing mm-hmm. the indigenous cultures that the films are from, which is like a yeah. whole separate can of worms. But um, and just to clarify, this is a fund um, that's part of the Rotterdam Film Festival's like funding yes. program that's specifically for world cinema. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's a little and it's I, I feel like it's always like a, a mark of, of confidence for me in some ways, or at least like this could be good. Anyway, um, the film's weirdly fun, considering that its explicit purpose is to discuss corruption in, in Thailand. 
And I was kind of amused just doing a little background, you know, like the, the main actor, whose name is Cordenai Mark Doutzenberg, the titular Arnold. Um, if you look at his Instagram, which is worth a quick look, he's uh, this is a big leap up for him because he's been doing some Pepsi commercials, <laughs> a little uh, runway modeling and some catalog shoots. This is um, what we so have with him on the podcast for. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Well, I like that. He's, he's a hustler, which I think actually fits pretty well with the movie, which is, is, uh-huh. is about corruption, but also just uh, kind of by any means necessary determination to uh, to to earn money in a extremely difficult environment. Beatrice. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I don't have anything too intense to say about this. I mean, I, I generally just enjoyed it. I, I appreciate how it, you know, it, it starts out as sort of like a deadpan farce of like this sort of bleak, corrupt high school environment. Um, and then like halfway through the narrative sort of splits into this sort of Godard light political digression um and then there there's the multimedia component and um so I mean I just commend it for being able to uh encompass all of that while pretty much throughout thoroughly being just pretty like brisk and enjoyable um and I think that in part it's held together so well because of the title character the actor that plays Arnold is just I found him like completely captivating as as a character and also just as a screen presence um I I just I I found him to be you know uh sort of relaxed and the sort of mild humor to him and the sort of punkish attitude while also being you know completely bewildered at the fact that you know uh, there's like this sort of uh thread in the film where he's uh recruited to help this sort of scammy school uh help other students gain admission through cheating and and he's because he's worldly or is considered worldly so his the whole conceit of him being a model student is that he's more worldly because he travels abroad and has like succeeded in some sort of math competition abroad. And so all of a sudden this makes him, you know, uh, down to do scams and like that's sort of the equivalent of entering the adult world for him and, you know, what makes him, I guess, superior. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I thought the yeah. movie was great fun and, and, um, so I'm keeping <laughs> tabs here. So that's two, two thumbs up from both of you for a total of four <laughs> thumbs up. Just gonna keep keep a running score. <laughs> here. I was, I think, mixed because the tone was so surprising, and so it made me both confused, but also I, I think I admired it for what it, it the the tone of the movie is not something I've encountered in other movies, especially in like American or Western cinema. It's mm-hmm. somehow I initially was thought it was childish. I was like, this comedy, it's kind of cringe and childish, but there's something very um, earnest about it too, right? I mean, it is a movie about children and it very much commits to that while also being about these more cynical ideas of the world and, you know, education systems. And I thought that, yeah, I I just think it's very tonally singular. And um, and I... I, you know, it it reminded me of the kind of like education system I went through, and I I did think it was a very, in, you know, it just a very kind of playful but also committed and realistic portrait of a certain kind of Asian, you know, education system that is like very much 
uh, yeah, which is like you were describing, Beatrice, you know, it's about all these like prep schools and grades and exams. And then who becomes like the model student often has less to do with necessarily ability than these kinds of worldliness and connections. And yeah, I, 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 I just remember being very kind of taken aback almost by the that portrait and the tone the film achieves and like getting that across. Right. And there's this really interesting dichotomy between, you know, just how uh, technologically cued in and sort of um, just in the know a lot of these students are just about like the ways of the world and the realities of how these, you know, things like social advancement come about with the just like crude traditionalism of of the school that they're enrolled in. And, and so the sort of student movement aspect of the film is comes about in response to the fact that there's a teacher that like beats the students when they don't obey which is obviously incredibly retrograde and and so that contrast I, I thought was um handled you know in a way that you know just felt realistic right yeah okay so two thumbs up as oh, Clint six thumbs said. up <laughs> we've All got right. a, I think we've got the this leading the leading the pack now. I think we've got Arnold, you know, <laughs> better than Earth Mama. It's got six I, thumbs up. <laughs> well, uh, maybe we can talk about Astrakhan, which Vadim and Beatrice, you've both seen, right? And God, what a strange film that is, uh, Beatrice. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the synopsis duties here. Sure. Um, so it's Astrakhan is a sort of bleak, I mean, coming of age film seems generous because I'm not sure if there's huge development. I mean, and I'm not saying this is like a, a negative thing. I'm just saying it's very much like a, an immediate a present tense, like experience. Um, but anyways, about a, a young kid, I think he's like 10 or something. Um, and he's in foster care in sort of this rural part of France. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, I mean, I don't know how explicit the homage is, but like, you know, Marie Spialet comes to mind. L'Enfance Nue is like kind of I think it's pretty obvious. Explicit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like the obvious reference point. And like, similarly, this film, um, you know, to me, it's great success is the balance it hits between uh beauty and violence in, in a way that I found really elegant. Um, but this this film is, is quite different. I mean, L'Enfance Nue is, the kid is like pretty impenetrable. There aren't really many indications of his internal state. Um, and so his actions are kind of simultaneously confusing and revelatory. But like here, there's a lot of like intimate, solitary sequences that draw out his personality and um you know kind of explains how you know these encounters or these moments shape him you know pretty uh just like from beginning to end that's sort of the the structure like way that the film you know constructs its character and and so it's it's very bleak it's it's just about this kid he's in foster care the foster parents are you know, quite abusive, but then he also has this weird doing it for the, the money. Yeah, they're clearly yeah. doing it for the money. But like throughout, I, I think the, the mother equivalent is a little softer on him. And he does sort of like her more. Um, and he meets this neighbor who's who's 
a, a girl and like she kind of invites him over to his house and they have like this sort of tenuous sexual encounter light not really but you know and so it's like kind of him reacting to this meanwhile one of his foster brothers is and and this is hinted at but it's it's clear but um is being uh sexually abused by the foster mother's brother um he's has problems at school etc cetera, etc cetera. um so it's these sort of uh you know difficult to perverse experiences playing out against um sort of a steely natural backdrop um and eventually it uh culminates in something that goes a little off the rails um which may work for some people Mm. may may not work for others but it definitely hits a certain crescendo (laughs) you will not see that the ending coming (laughs) (laughs) Vadim what did you think um I like it pretty well I um the you know the the PLR there's like so many channels of um of I had a bad child childhood and French naturalism that you can follow and I was getting a little um I was getting a little Jean Eustache um specifically Mes Petites Amoureuses and googling around I was gratified to see that in fact David de Passville has explicitly alluded to this movie in ways that I can't remember because it's been like 20 years since I've seen it but he's got like specific homages he's cast um you know, like it, there's a strange thing about this movie, which it, it kind of um, commits to kind of fainting at at naturalism, but has these certain very really kind of very tiny artifices to it, like in the initial stretches, like the the use of um, fades to black in a way that you don't really see much in contemporary cinema. And like about twenty minutes in, when he goes to meet this girl at her house, and she invites him over, as Beatrice was mentioning, they put on this obviously very strange and old movie and I had no idea what it was I had to look it up afterwards from the end credits it was a, a kind of um softcore erotic film from 1978 and it's like clearly a, like when you've exhausted the genre on archives you go deep <laughs> into this and I was like okay so this guy's like a film guy you know there's like a sequence where he and the girl walk to the movie theater together and get assaulted by Tusk so it's like very much in that kind of like I'm cinephilic but I, I will only like show it at certain moments and it's funny because the casting um, you know, in his extensive telling also alludes to this with the casting of Lisa Heredia, who is from the films of Jean-Claude Brousseau and uh, Paul Blaine because of the films of Gerard Blaine. So all this stuff is kind of baked in there, but it doesn't mm. really like pop out at you. And it's so as Beatrice is kind of alluding to, like the last 10 minutes is, you know, a, a different kind of uh, a, a, a flexing of cinematic muscles in in some ways. Um I like it. I'm. I have a lot of sympathy for uh, for 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 miserable childhood movies. I I have I have I have a high tolerance for that kind of thing. What about uh, goats suckling mothers? Yeah. Nipples. Yeah. How about <laughs> yeah, Clint's face? I think that I think that we applaud people who Is that do a something. Genre? You don't see like ten minute dream sequences much anymore. That's just not the kind of flexing muscle that you see. I also think that. Um, or is it I, sheep? Is it goats or sheep? It's a sheep. It's, it's a sheep. sheep. It's, okay. a, it's black a black sheep. sheep, like the prodigal, which is escaped. For, you know, like blah blah. blah. Yeah. It's a uh, and it's funny because listening to the synopsis, which we just provided, is, is entirely accurate. Um, but for some reason, the movie didn't strike me as exceptionally bleak. But I think that just might be because I have a, a high bar for misery. Um, but I, I just I just kind of note that in case it sounds like too heavy. It doesn't feel to me like the heaviest. I think it actually film. is very delicate 
and warm and light. And that, when you realize actually how dark it is, it comes as a surprise. I mean, that was my experience when it starts out as like sort of pleasant, but then he, it is, I mean, the relationship between the parents and the adopted child is like quite rough and cruel. And so it almost takes you by surprise, um, you know. I think it's yeah. also probably worth noting that this is this is in a, in a sense like based on true events in a way that was not really obvious to me when I watched the movie. When I was reading up afterwards, like the David DePespel talks about like growing up in this town that was an orphan town that was a big hub for orphans going in and out. So these experiences yeah. that these orphan that these orphan and foster children have is something that he grips around with. Like there's a scene with a cemetery of unmarked graves that comes from reality. So the movie actually does have um, this almost kind of weirdly one to one relationship. With, with reality in some ways that are not super obvious while watching it. And it's and I'm not sure whether it's a good thing to know that or not. Um, but mm. it did it did kind of explain some things after the fact, if in fact explanations are what we want. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe I emphasized its bleakness a bit too much, but I do think it actually is is quite good at balancing the bleak with you know, something of much more elegant and, and delicate. And, you know, a scene that comes to mind there, him and his two other foster brothers bike out and, and paddle out to the middle of this river. And they're like, seems like they're having a nice time. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, oh no, they don't paddle out. They, they drift ashore, right? Yeah, yeah. And? Um, and, and yeah, and so then they're like, okay, we're out there. And one of them's like, well, okay, guess I have to get us back. And he like takes off all his clothes and then like pulls them back. And it's, I don't know, it's just like a moment yeah, like that then, where it just it contains a lot. Um, it does. Mm-hmm. But then I think it's, isn't it soon after that, that he is, you know, beaten by the adopted father or something. So there is the seesaw, you know, between. Oh, yes, exactly. There's a seesaw. Yeah, the seesaw um, between like moments yeah, that seem very playful and, and full of childlike joy, but then you start anticipating and dreading <laughs> what is to come. And again, I don't. I think Vadim is right in saying that we don't want to make the sound like misery porn or something that's very oppressive to watch. It's it's very but much like vignettes or, or moments strung together, and each moment feels complete in itself. But um, I, I, I did find it. Find it uh, very hard to watch as well and at, at some points and, and quite gutting, yeah. I mean, he also directly references Mouchette, so it's not like we're completely free of the misery zone here. <laughs> <laughs> Miserable um, childhood seemed to be a theme this year. How many yes. thumbs? Oh, I don't think we have. We I, I think we should abandon. The We're moving on from thumbs. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's, it's a okay. slippery slope. Dangerous territory. Um, yeah. I think... Let's move on to a film that is lighter. It's actually like a comedy. I think among this collection of films we're talking about today, maybe one of, along with Arnold, is like the only other comedy in my view, which is The Face of the Jellyfish. Yeah. Remembering Every Night also kind of a light, lighter, oh, okay. lighter okay. movie. We'll, we'll get to that. But The Face of the Jellyfish is is just genuinely quite funny and ironic. Mm-hmm. And uh, have all of us seen it? 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, I saw it at the Berlinale and um, it was like one of the smaller films I saw, which again, I'm using air quotes, um, which is not always a nice word. Well, we but were sitting this... really far back in the theater. <laughs> this so. is true, in a huge theater. But also what I mean is it's Trick just, it's a, it's a short, it's like 75 minutes or something in that range. And it has a very small, simple conceit that it kind of plays on across across its duration but that conceit is just so rich and clever and I'll just briefly describe it um a woman uh, a young woman uh basically wakes up one day with a different face that's of also of a, like a, of a young woman who's about the same age and like yeah yeah it, it's everything is the same she just wakes up with a different face and the movie is kind of drops us into her post transformation mm-hmm. reality, like in media's rest. So I I, th- I thought that was really interesting too. Like when I when we were watching it, I thought it would start with that dramatic moment, you know, of revelation of metamorphosis, and it doesn't. It's she's at the doctor when when the film opens, and she's like, "Find me a cure for this," and the you know, and everyone's like, "Okay, but." And and the funny thing is everyone's like, yeah, but you look really nice now. <laughs> like people almost seem to seem to compliment her, her looks and sort of it, it, it generates this identity crisis on multiple levels, obviously generates a crisis of identity for her. But the film really explores how, you know, it, 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 it entails bureaucratic hassle. So she right. goes to get a new ID made and they're like, okay, but. We can't like your face is different, so we can't just put a new face. Are you sure you're the same person? And she goes to these doctors who who come up with different maladies, and she has this boyfriend who is like, "I don't care that you have a different face. I still love you." And but she's having she just can't overcome this feeling of being alien to the people who love her, you know, and what it means that. I think she's struggling with the fact that they love her even though she looks different. Like, that mm-hmm. should technically mean something good. But actually, if you think about it, it's kind of frightening because it makes you think of what made you you. And it's just very, very funny, I think, on a moment-to-moment level, right? I'll let one of you kind of say more about the tone. Um, Clint, did you want to say something? The filmmaker's name is Melissa Liebenthal, um, and it's an Argentinian film. It takes place in Buenos Aires. And... Uh, the tone, I mean, it sort of reminds, you know, the conceit is like Gogol, Gogol-esque, I guess. Uh, but, and I think the tone is kind of there too, but it doesn't really take that turn into um, madness that you might expect from something like that. She just kind of learns to live like a normal life in this new situation that she's in and kind of, str- and kind of starts taking advantage of some of the um, new things that are available to her, including an affair with one of her students. She was a, she's a professor at a university and she just shows up to the university and all the students are like, wow, who's the new girl? And this one kind of young man, she is really like asks her out and she goes out with him and she starts an affair with him. And it's really kind of, it just it's just funny i mean i don't i don't know how to like they they that's it doesn't it sounds kind of exploitative and creepy and it is kind of but it's all it's in it's exploitative and creepy and sort of a curb your enthusiasm bit way i wouldn't call it like it doesn't it doesn't really go into like the darker aspects of this 
scenario at all. Um, then the fam, there's just kind of that like family comedy aspect too. She she lives with her parents while now that she's undergoing this experience and kind of re- reverts into an adolescent behavior pattern. I guess she goes home and like slams the door. She stays out late and parties. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think this. I thought it was really pleasant, but I think I was saying before that it's kind of twee, <laughs> which is maybe not a criticism, but a little like it's just sort of kind of goes along and it's joke joke to joke and i maybe I, I don't mean to criticize it i don't mean to be negative here it's a great film one of the greatest three <laughs> thumbs up no, back. <laughs> okay but Eve, i see you like shaking your head what <laughs> yeah i mean tweet tweet obviously is a categorical descriptor i don't yeah, know maybe, maybe really. it's a qualitative it's, I think, wait i think it's, i think you, you say like tweet i'm just like those are just jokes you know like, yeah, yeah. they're not yeah i, I think, mean I mean, what I mean, else is it going to be? I guess is the question. Like, I mean, it's and you're kind of getting at it in, in your in your synopsis is that there's a potential nastiness here because you know, yeah. it's a kind of a story about um, um, a girl who has something happen to her and kind of uses it as an excuse to act badly for an extended period of time, but not too um, badly. No, but you know, def- <laughs> definitely just kind of like not being super nice to like anybody in her existence, right. which and is which is another one of those things that I'm automatically very kind of sympathetic to. But you know, like, the I think the the it's like we're gonna like, get like a profile. Of, of, of <laughs> I, I wear I wear my profile on my sleeve. You know, it's 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 all out there for people to figure out. Um, I think that. Um, I thought about Martine Reitman, who's like a very specific mm-hmm. filmmaker whose movies are droll and funny in the same kind of way. But the kind of there's two degrees of difference that are important. Um, and one is that um, Martine Reitman generally structures his movies as leaping from one character to another. So you have a new person every five minutes. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of like, what if one person had all these different scenarios? Like it's different kind of like things for her to explore, but with a central character. But it's still a very kind of like go from this to this to this kind of stuff. I, I think the tweeness is most prominent in the interludes with the little mapping mappings of animal faces and front and little synthesizer twiddles that go like. That's <laughs> that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Is like the the Martin Reitman other degree of doing the Martin Reitman is kind of a luddite filmmaker. You know, like he's, mm-hmm. his movies don't yeah. have like smartphones or anything in them. Yeah. Like they're very kind of like analogy. And this is like somebody who's like been comfortable. I, I it's not even like being very online. It's like just being on a laptop your entire right, life. right, right. And like, because throughout throughout this movie, she's constantly like, um, you know, there are these these maps that you mentioned, which kind of are these kinds of like abstract linking sequences where like you run through like uh, animals faces and do like uh, face mapping and reduce them to dots in comparison. There's a lot of photo booth selfie action in it. Um, mm-hmm. So there's like social media stuff, but there's also just like a general comfort with using that kind of technology is like something they use every day for multiple purposes. And um, and I think. I, I thought in passing, like, I'm so delighted that people now can make movies like this and just, like, integrate them in a way that feels comfortable and casual and not, like, how do we represent mediated existence on screen? Yeah, yeah. Because right. the person who made this is, like, over it. You know, like, it's not even something that she has to think about. It's, it's just part like, of the day-to-day of life. daily existence. Yeah. Um, but it's done in a way that um, is very lighthearted and mostly for comedy. And so it doesn't have that kind of feeling of like straining to become an essay film. And because like, right. if you think about the movie it could actually be very ungainly. It's not paper. even, well, it's not about that. It's not about like the dangers of social media or digital existence. It's not, I mean, you know, it's, but it is, you know, it is about like 
we do the 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 uses of social media and like this kind of technology in the narrative i mean there's a scene where she finally uploads her new face on facebook oh, and right, people right. are like you look amazing <laughs> like, you know and there is um without being too somber or academic about it it is gesturing at what it means to both live in a world of images but also like live in a world where the face as a marker of identity not just interpersonally but in terms of data mm is also very prominent, you know. And I, I did like that it was, it, it felt like it wasn't about that, but it was very aware that it's the film is a comedy set in that world, a world that is, you know, becoming tethered to face ID and biometrics and eye scanners and all of that. And I think there's an element of like her, fa- of like the genetic, the genetic makeup of her face. She, she uses uh, old pictures of her parents and fa- and grandparents to like, create a composite version of what her face would look like. That's like kind of an exquisite corpse with little strips of face. Um, and, you know, I think that there's this aspect of like recognizing your, your parents and yourself that she yeah. uses. It's inter- um, sorry, Beatrice. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, about the photos that you, you know, that I'm not sure if this was mentioned, that, but the, the old self is like the filmmaker, herself mm-hmm. and I think that some of the pictures of like her parents like might actually be like some sort of family images of like her family history mm-hmm. so this is autobiographical another traumatic childhood. yeah a little bit like her former yeah like her past face is the filmmaker's face um but but yeah I mean I, I love this film I actually have been tracking her work I I'm very enthusiastic enthusiastic about her in general I Melissa Libenthal um that is I I saw her last short uh Aki Iaya um and, and that one's kind of interesting because it like explores her family history through geography and and place and so it pretty much uses Google Maps entirely to like give us locations like access to like various locations that are significant to her and her family history um and so it's interesting because you know, technologies like like Google Maps, you know, give us like unprecedented access to, you know, to 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 the past and, and to just like all these parts of the world. And yet they don't really do anything to like make up for, you know, the, the sort of the, what's lost, like they, the rift that they created is kind of interesting. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, modern technologies can afford us access to this and yet remain oddly devoid of specificity, like to watch, to see like an apartment building through the lens of Google Maps is like strangely like immediate and like, yes, precise. And yet it is also like- Looks the same no matter what city you're of, Alienating, of particularity. yeah. And so, I, you know, I find that that dichotomy between the particular and the universal is something that's also at play here um but you know she extends it to the realm of of identity and and facial recognition and sort of this identity crisis film and you know something for me that that really um contextualized it was the various sequences of of the animals um and you know i actually rewatched bits of it because i also saw it at berlin um and the amount of time she dedicates to to just admiring various animals at the zoo and they're different zoos they're like there's some zoos it's in true. Latin America and Italy and then in some English-speaking country 
Like there's so much time she dedicates to just like watching zoo animals and and sort of capturing the didactics and the fact that zoos often give animals names and this sorts of sense of identity that's created through naming and like naming something, you know, like a wild animal. It, it's, you know, it and in one sense, it's like, ah, you know, as opposed to just seeing this animal as a random instant, an instance of, of the species, you know, we, we kind of give them an identity yet at the same time, there's something overly precious about it. The fact that, you know, we're using this sort of marker to pin it down and like anthropomorphize it and um, make it unique I mean that's right and, right. and make it unique and so you know it, I, I think the way that is in conversation with like the main narrative of her identity crisis is, is interesting um but I think it's it's doubly I, I don't know just productive the fact that it also challenges that that viewpoint um I found through there's this extended uh plot line with uh her mom's cat poppy who is <laughs> this just like this black random cat. black cat that like her mom is so obsessed with like obsessed even like more so than the fact that her daughter has a completely different face <laughs> but it's like this generic black cat and also this is extremely latino like i also like as a like peruvian american person i i found a lot of just like subtle recognition to just like how um, old Latino people like inhabit their homes and like are obsessed with like certain, I don't know, just like domestic things. Um, mm. But anyways, um, with the black cat, um, I, I just, you know, it kind of made me think about um, how, you know, just the idea of love, it's, it's not about convenience or having like attributes match. It's about like a belief in the singularity of, of the object that you're in love with and right. like that object having a certain irreducible quality. And like, I guess Poppy experiences that, but um, the main character is, is not sure if she's experiencing that, right. which I found yeah. super interesting. Yeah, I think that, okay, I know we said we won't do thumbs up anymore, but this this feels like a four thumbs up, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's my favorite film of the lineup. So. Well, that would be okay, eight I mean, thumbs up, I think. Yeah, we gotta be. <laughs> Eight point, uh, 7.5. Okay, okay. Um, all right, let's get through a couple other films. We don't have a lot of time, but there's a few other films that I really would love us to talk about. Um, how about we talk about Safe Place next, which I think Beatrice and I have seen, and which is a film that I really love. I am so glad it's a new director's, and I really hope people seek it out, and I can say a few words about it. So it's a Croatian film by the filmmaker Juraj Lerotic. I hope I'm saying that right. And in es essence, it's a film about a man played by the director himself who's who finds out that his brother um, basically tried to commit suicide. And then he takes his brother to the hospital. And then the film is set over 24 hours in which he and his mother are trying to get his brother care and uh, also trying to prevent further suicide attempts. And at some point they lose track of the brother and they're like searching for him. And so it's really a thriller, like a very um, suspenseful thriller that draws upon really intimate feelings of 
protection and familial um, just attachment and the feelings of responsibility you have as family uh, to your siblings, to your relatives, when they're in this kind of crisis, a crisis you ultimately don't have control over. You know, you can't necessarily control whether a person wants to live or die, but you feel the sense of responsibility. And that's just packed into this 24 hours that the film, you know, just, and, and just the scenes of them trying to get him care at hospitals and then when he, they when he goes missing them like looking at all the places that he might be and calling people i mean it's just like racing against the clock um but it's also much more complex than that and there is i i don't even know if i want to spoil this there is this you know incredible twist in the first about 15 minutes of the film, and I won't actually, I, I won't spell it out. I, I'll just say that there's a moment when the reality of the film ruptures and it reveals itself as something self-reflexive and autobiographical. And basically, this is the story of the filmmaker and his brother. And this, and so he's kind of reenacting what happened with his brother. And again, not to say too much, but you realize that this film is a reenactment that is in part like him trying to process what happened, but also in part like a kind of retribution, a kind of like, you know, it's like when you play out something in your past and think of all the ways it could have gone different. It's kind of him doing that through film. But also in some ways, there's an aspect of revenge against the system to it. And I think... I mean, that moment is, Beatrice, that's like, it's so unexpected and so seamlessly done, right? Because just one moment the film, the characters exit the reality of the film and then they're just seamlessly back in. Yeah, no, I mean, I also quite like the film. It is incredible how just immersive it is, but then it makes you question what exactly are you being immersed into? And yeah, it's interesting you call it like a suspense film because it very much is that, but it also feels... Uh, much more particular than like, I don't know, the, than the suspense or horror film sense. It's like, it's difficult to watch because it's like, it plunges you into the very state of, of the characters that are trying to help out this family member, which is a state of total uncertainty and laced with this nagging dread that something isn't right that something right. bad is going to happen, but you don't know what that really is because right. the main, the the brother that has attempted suicide, I mean, like, you know, the nature of depression is that there's also something impenetrable about it. And, and that's precisely what I think creates depression. There's just a sense of unknown, like frustration and despair that like the person itself, like himself can't even access, but then also from the perspective of, someone trying to help it's just you know something is wrong but there's there's nothing really that you can latch onto aside from the sort of intimation of of you know of, of something being off and and right. i think the film just really is incredibly successful at at creating that ambient dread and and putting you in that in the present tense of imminent tragedy Right. And I think that revelation that it is his story, the director's story, mm. is what kind of also adds. You watch the rest of the film now knowing 
that this is ju- isn't just a story of a man trying to save his brother. It's the story of a man who is grappling with that responsibility, you know? And so you, I don't know, that is, I think, what adds to the particularity of it because what he's dreading is not just his brother's death, but having to live with the fact that he let his brother slip through his hands and kill himself. You know, I mean, that's that's like the nature of caring for someone who is suicidal or right. mentally ill. Yeah. It's like a huge, you know, it's it's a very difficult position mm-hmm. that the film just captures so precisely and like guttingly. Right. Um, the way that they cling to just certain, like I think there's certain points when Damir is saying, oh, I'm feeling better. And like the way that they repeat that, hoping that it could be true because they really have nothing else to lean on, I found really affecting. Um, but I, I also thought it was interesting that, and, and this is maybe uh, more typical of just Eastern European films, but uh, there's also an element of the bureaucratic incompetence of these, the hospitals and, and the police. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but Especially toward not, the end. Yes. Um, that's not the sort of main focus, but like the way it sort of interweaves that with like the whole, with the frustrations of the family members, just, you know, trying to find solid ground throughout this whole situation is you know, incredibly, um, I don't know, just really hard, hard to watch. It's so um, frightening. And and I'll just say the film has, it's, it's very formally precise. I mean, it's shot very beautifully and in a, in a formalist way in the sense that there are these remote wide shots where you'll see the characters are just little figures. Uh, you know, there are these very oblique shots where you'll see you know, you see something sort of from an escance gaze, like you'll see a shadow or or just have like a, a sideways look at a scene. So it's very carefully framed, which to me, again, evoked this idea of someone who is playing back a traumatic part of their lives and looking at it from all these different angles, trying to see like, did I miss something? Like, could I have could I have looked another way and found something that could have changed everything? You know, I, I thought it really captured that sense god just you're talking about that film is like actually kind of making me emotional (laughs) it's just a very hard film to watch um i think so we're at um an hour um i think what we'll do to wrap up is maybe go through and just do like a shout out i think each of us has at least like a film or two that we wanted to talk about that we didn't get to that we really like um so maybe clint did you want to start us off Sure, yeah. Um, I really like this film called Remembering Every Night. The filmmaker's name is Yui Kiyohara, and uh, she she had a previous feature. Was it a new director's? Does anybody remember? Our oh, House. Our House. Yeah, in 2018, I believe. Um, ah, she's a rare a new director's She's an old director at this timer. point. <laughs> yeah, back-to-back. Back-to-back new director's uh-huh. achievements. This one um, is a day in the life of three women, and it follows these three women and, and as they are, as their paths intersect throughout the course of a single day. Um, one of the women is a middle-aged, unemployed woman. Then you have a somebody who's reading the meters at um, an apartment building, and the third woman is a college student. And um, 
The film has a very light touch, and there's a lot of little jokes and funny and funny business that they get into as, as they go about their days. But uh, it also has kind of this kind of uh, cumulative oomph that by the end you're kind of surprised is there that there's this uh, emotional power that the film kind of suddenly drops on you. Um, and it, it works in a, in a mysterious way that I can't quite figure out. It definitely wasn't sure. I wasn't sure while I was watching it, what the filmmaker was trying to do or where this movie was going. And, uh, the fact that it ultimately landed someplace, I think is like, you know, that's the kind of movie that I, that I really enjoy, like being in that kind of indeterminate space, even if it's, you know, in this in this case, a very pleasant indeterminate space, just sort of a beautiful afternoon in suburban Japan, suburban Tokyo, I think. Um, but yeah, so I I thought it was quite a strong movie. So that's Clint's pick. Vadim, yep. what's your two pick? thumbs up? <laughs> what what Vadim? What's your pick for a shout out? I'll do I'll do I'll do a quick split here. Uh, one for uh, Sundance Best of Fest, personally, Melissa Thondo, and which. Uh, First time filmmaker Melissa Thondo Bengala uh, delivers, uh, among other things, a 20 minute argument with her producer about whether or not an encounter they had at a hotel room is actually a racist microaggression in which they contextualize it against the entire history of South African apartheid, thereby showing us how difficult it is to have a conversation with anybody at any time. Um, and also contains a, a whole treasure trove of, of South African ar- archival footage that will make her skin crawl that she got apparently a lot of from an anonymous donor. Um, all of, so you're, you're not going to find that on YouTube, even if you were, um, feeling self-lacerating enough to search out South African, uh, time capsule apartheid era footage on YouTube. It's not there. Um, and, and just, I just, I just, I how do you that, know that? Yeah. I, That's interesting. The, well, <laughs> you do, you do raise, I took her at face value. <laughs> perhaps she has lied and, and perhaps I should be spending some time searching for that. So that is, that is a good As question. As if you haven't already. Yeah. Uh, I will just say that we, we had Melissa Tando on the podcast a few yeah. weeks ago at True Falls and very, very fascinating conversation about all of the things that Buddy mentioned the archival footage, having conversations with friends uh, for films, all of that. So um, interested listeners can check that out. Uh, but go ahead, Vadim. I would also like to give a quick shout out, as is my usual want, to some of the short films. In this case, specifically Aquarante by, uh, pardon me here, uh, Manuel Munoz Rivas, which won the... Uh, the, the uh, what do they call the Rotterdam short film section? The Amodo Tiger Shorts competition. It won this year. It's very cool. It's 25 minutes. It kind of starts off presenting like somebody is making an uber formalist uh, documentary, you know, this uh, ferry crossing a river and um, eventually reveals itself to be like overtly metaphorical in a way that people really don't do much of these days. And that's actually pretty cool. But generally, generally uh, a formalist foot forward type exercise, but also an exercise in a staging drama among like about a dozen or so characters in a way that's just very cool. That I've, I've not seen anybody do something quite this way, just basically to take advantage of, 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 a, of a ferry covered with cars and just like use that to like slice up where everybody is. Um, it's a good time for people who like that kind of thing. And in general, I have um, a lot of confidence in these shorts programs, although I haven't seen all of them. Those are, those are my two. Cool. Beatrice, you want to go next? Sure. Um, 
So I really liked uh, the Serbian film, Have You Seen This Woman? Uh, by a directing pair, uh, Matija Gluskovic and Dusan Zoric. Um, it's set in Belgrade. It, it follows this middle-aged woman, Draginja. She's sort of this, when we're first introduced to her, at least she's this sort of portly, apathetic-seeming cleaning lady. Oh, no, no, she's, she's a vacuum machine like salesperson like she goes from door to door uh like rotely going through the script and like presenting this vacuum machine to, to sell to you know various people in, in in belgrade apartments um anyways during one of these presentations uh she's with an old woman and, and they're watching the news and and they're both drawn into this breaking news story of a murder and then in the next scene, uh, Draginja stumbles upon a bloody murder scene. And it's also this sort of middle-aged woman who like vaguely resembles her. Um, and, and from then on, the film splinters uh, into pretty much like a cinematic incarnation of of the phrase I contain multitudes, which is this, at this point is kind of a cliche, but I think this film does it in a really interesting um, and and non explicit way. Um, and so then we go into sort of three iterations of this woman, um, and and also like the style changes. You know, the opening sequence is a bit more formalist and, and austere, and then. Um, what follows, you know, at one point it's more naturalistic and shakier and, and it sort of shifts in, in that sense. But, um, uh, you know, in, in the first segment, she's taking ecstasy. She's at this club um, involved with this weird drama with this this younger woman and her ex-boyfriend. And then the second segment, she's um, a woman who has hired a husband and steals a baby from the hospital and also she can stage this uh domestic life to show off to her friends and her son and then in the third sequence she's i don't even know what she is she's like a homeless person or like a vagabond community fixture um anyway this would all seem to be super deadly serious but it's actually quite funny or at least kind of tragic comic um and and the actress that plays Draginja is is really great she's got kind of this manic look and her eyes and and the way that she departs from her initial character being this sort of lame cleaning lady is is really incredible um and and the film has this sort of interesting meta component like each of the segments uh sort of play with with the idea of performance and the boundaries between performance and reality or artificially induced states of reality in the case of the the ecstasy sequence. And it's also kind of in conversation with um, uh, like different cinematic modes. So the whole film begins with this man announcing in a sort of, in the sort of style of, of televised true crime features that what follows is, you know, an exploration of the mysterious figure, figure of Draginja. And anyway, so it's really playful in that sense. Um, the way it ventures into questions of like identity and, and fantasy and how, you know, cinematic modes can kind of complicate the 
boundaries between all those things. Um, but it does so without overly explaining these conceits. Um, it, it's very low key. Sounds like a good companion piece to the face of the jellyfish, actually. Maybe that's why I yeah. like it. <laughs> Women's um, identity. <laughs> That sounds very that sounds very interesting. I I have to check it out. Um I'll do my quick shout out to a film that I I mentioned briefly on a on our Toronto podcast with a, which is Ashkal by the Tunisian director Youssef Shebi. Uh the full title is Ashkal the Tunisian Investigation. I whichever producer suggested putting that the Tunisian Investigation just it makes it sound like some CSI episode or something. Um I think this is a remarkable film. I really think it's a film quite unlike any I've seen. It's a detective noir um, set in Tunis. Um, It follows... The main character is this young woman, this young police detective named Fatma. Um, And she has this, you know, the classic kind of older, jaded, gruff partner, mentor, partner, detective. The two are this team. And they're investigating a series of deaths, which first seem like accidents, but then because they repeat as a pattern, they seem, it seems like the work of a serial killer or something. And they're all, but they're all death by self-immolation. People, like, apparently setting themselves on fire. And so they start investigating this um, in this very kind of rundown part of Tunis, which actually, as it turns out, most of the film takes place in this abandoned area that was supposed to be um, this complex called the Gardens of Carthage that was meant to be like a, a, a um, some kind of area or some kind of resort for dignitaries of the Tunisian regime before the revolution in 2010. And it's kind of abandoned since then. So most of the film is set then and it has this extremely eerie vibe and it really recalls all these classic detective tropes and classic noir tropes in a setting that I haven't seen them play out in before, which is Tunis, you know, and it's... um, very unusual. And what is really striking is that as the investigation proceeds, it becomes unexplainable. Like the deaths don't add up into anything that seems like it could be blamed on a on a human. So it takes on these like spiritual dimensions that I, that become kind of unanswerable. And I found that really interesting. What starts out as a very seemed like detective noir, just like playing on classic tropes, becomes something sort of metaphysical. And it all kind of adds up to, I think, an an, an evocative kind of um, meditation on post-revolution Tunisia and the scars of, of the revolution. Because the story is actually based on the street vendor, Mohamed Wazizi, who immolated himself in 2010 and kicked off, basically it was the spark that kicked off the Tunisian revolution. He immolated himself in public as a protest against being harassed by the authorities. Um, And so that is being dramatized here in a story that's partly like this genre story and also fantasy and also this kind of reckoning with, you know, a culture and a nation. And I think it's really elusive it's you just can't put a finger on what exactly happens and it just stayed in my mind for a long time so I want to encourage people to check it out that's my shout out 
And before we end, I will also say that I think many of us here are big fans of Gush by Fox Maxi. We talked about it at length, actually, with Vadim on one of our Sundance podcasts, and it was also covered in one of our Sundance dispatches, so we didn't go into it too much. But I would like to just encourage people to check out what is probably one of the most playful, exciting, and... um, I don't know, 2023 films in the lineup, like Gen Z (laughs) films in the lineup. Thank you both for joining. Thank you. And listeners, New Director starts on, uh, starts the the end of this week on the 29th. So please uh, check out filmlink.org or newdirectors.org for the lineup and for ticket info. And yeah, thank you to our guests for helping us walk through the lineup. Thank you. Thank you. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcommon.com.